Welcome to the New Books Network. The town-countryside split has always been a feature of Western democratic politics and it's impacted party choice. Uh, The advent of rust belts may have added a layer of complexity to these uh, very broad-brush demographics and that may be part of the reason uh, for the differences between rural and urban voters apparently deepening, especially in the US. And uh, to learn about this, I'm joined by Nicholas Jacobs and Daniel Shea, who've written The Rural Voter. Uh, perhaps you could introduce yourselves, so we'll we'll get your voices as well. Uh, so are you country types or, or city slickers? Nicholas? I, I live in the countryside. I'm a proud rural resident of Vassaburra, Maine. Uh, Maine is my adopted home state. Prior to moving up here, I, I grew up and was raised in Virginia an increasingly suburbanized state, but there's still pockets of ruralness there. So really, you identify as rural? I do identify as rural. That doesn't mean I share uh, many of the characteristics we explore in the book, but I, I am a rural person. I do rural things, uh, and I, I, I could not imagine myself living anywhere else but a rural community. Daniel Shea, do you think you could identify rural if you're an academic? It's harder. It's funny. I do consider myself rural-ish, small town-ish, and my dad was actually an academic. So we grew up in a small town uh, at a state school in upstate New York, um, Oneonta, about fifteen thousand. So it wasn't. We didn't live out in the woods per se, but it was a small town, and my extended family lived out in the in the countryside. It is harder, your question, can you identify as rural and also be an academic? We're a little bit of a rare breed. Um, I don't know if there are too many other folks on campus that fish and hike and garden, and I tap maple trees in the spring, and Nick does all. Boy, Nick's got a greenhouse and this sort of, you know, so it's, we're, we're a little bit of an odd duck. I think I'm just going to start with the thing that struck me when I did some reporting from Nebraska a few years ago which was and actually in southern Texas as well and I just couldn't understand how it was that these very modest self-effacing often quite wealthy but also philanthropic philanthropic uh, rural Americans were so keen on Trump who, who is none of the things they are you know he's he's, he's brash uh, I, I don't think he's particularly philanthropic and he doesn't live by their values. I couldn't understand that. Can you explain it to me? Well, we we try to in 488 pages. So we'll do so briefly here. In fact, this is this uh, question is the exact same question that, as Dan and I write, motivates us. Um, it, it strikes us as perplexing. Uh, maybe that and some of our reticence to say that we fully identify as rural Americans comes from the fact, we try to be transparent, that that Dan and I did not vote for Donald Trump. uh, And we're very clear in the book, we do not really think that Donald Trump uh, represents a lot of what rural people hold dear and and what rural people, I think, want from, from their government. And yet, it's undeniable that that support for Donald Trump in rural America is higher than it is found anywhere else in the country. Um, what we ultimately argue, though, is, is you almost understand this divide on, on Trump and Biden or Trump and Clinton, you kind of have to see beyond Trump. 
um, which is hard to do. You have to understand the rural-urban divide beyond the cult of personality that is Donald Trump. Uh, the rural-urban divide has been growing for 40 years. Uh, in fact, as we show in the book, Donald Trump did, you know, Donald Trump did about what he should do in rural America, given the long-term historic trend lines. Um, and as much as we want to make this a story about Trump, so much of it should be better. So much of it is better explained as a vote an increasing reluctance, antipathy, and then somewhat downright anger towards the Democratic Party. Um, and Donald Trump capitalized on that. Right. So you're saying any Republican candidate would have attracted the support of these people. So Mitt Romney does better than John McCain. John McCain in rural America, John McCain does better than George W. Bush, right, who does better than Dole. And, and Trump does you know, if you were to draw a line of decreasing Democratic support in rural America, Donald Trump does exactly what he should do, which is win more rural voters, because that's what the Republican Party has been doing since 1980, is increasingly winning more and more rural voters. And uh, Daniel Shea, can you just, at, at this sort of introductory phase, help us with who the rural voters are? You know, what are the defining characteristics obviously location whiter older uh, less educated yes all that's correct um slightly lower income overall um it's actually one of the most important parts of the early chapters of the book we take on what's called the composition effect right so one of the arguments we often hear is that rural areas really just have a greater concentration of the demographic groups more likely to be Republican. So is it simply that there are older, whiter Americans, less educated, slightly less income in rural America? Does that in itself define the rural voter? So we take a really close look at that and we find again and again that that does not explain the rural voter we show both a lot of issues such as race and age, for example. Uh, young voters uh, supported in rural areas, young voters supported Donald Trump more than it did Joe Biden. So it isn't just composition effects. Something else is happening out there. But you're right, Owen. Um, it is a, a demographic group that is different than rest of America, although there is roughly 20% of rural areas are are of people of color. Uh, there's increasing amounts of diversity in rural areas. But I think your point's a good one. It is a particular uh, uh, demographic that, that leans uh, Republican to begin with, but, but we don't think the composition effect explains the rural voter. Well, one thing that you do mention as an explanatory factor, I was very, very struck by because I, I don't know if you're familiar. I, I, I didn't don't think you referenced it. So I wondered if you'd seen this book on the Brexit vote uh, by a someone called David Goodhart. Mm -hmm. you aware of that? The somewheres and the... No, yeah, exactly, exactly. because you seem to be talking in the same terms. I mean, just very quickly, for those who haven't read it, it seems to be uh, the case that Brexit voters tended to be more rooted in their communities and the Remain voters with the European Union were much more travelled and uh, likely to be able to settle in any part of the UK or indeed the world, whereas yeah, the Brexit voters were either you know, by choice or otherwise stuck in their communities. And you seem to be talking about the same sort of thing in America. 
Yeah, it's been a while since I've read the book, and I don't, uh, and I'm sure Dan would agree, we don't claim to be experts on British politics or the complexities that led to the Brexit vote. Um, but I, I, from what I remember, I do think there's some similarities. We find that rural voters are much more likely to have lived a larger proportion of their lives in their communities. At the same time, you know, despite everything you've probably read about the decline of community and what a wasteland of alienation, right? This is the actual quote. Uh, rural Americans love living in rural America. They don't want to leave. Uh, urban voters, on the other hand, right, are much more transient. They're actually, they seem a little less satisfied with living in urban areas, which might explain why they move more frequently. Um, on other sort of values, Though, you know, it, at least in the American context, we were a little more reticent to lean into the anti-cosmopolitanism, anti-globalism in explaining our rural voting trends because, you, you know, rural voters aren't reflexively, we ask, you know, is it important to travel and to gain new experiences? And, and rural voters agree. Um, we see similar, you know, we see heightened levels of anti-immigrant attitudes in large urban areas as we do in the countryside that's facing increasing amounts of diversity from in, inward migration. So I think there are similarities uh, but I do think in the American context, there's uh, there's enough differences to distinguish our rural-urban divide from what's taking place in, in Europe. Um, and some of that is just American history, by and large. Um, uh, some of that is the racial divide, which is very unique in, in the United States' case. Um, and some of that is our two-party system, that it continues to exploit this in a way that other advanced industrial democracies uh, have not had to contend with. Yeah, it's, it's just, um, we'll get onto the history just now, but there's another sort of general point to make, uh, Daniel Shea, which is you know, the over-representation or not of rural voters in the American political system and therefore the importance of the rural vote block. Can you just talk us through that? Well, that's a good point. It's a point that we dispute a bit. That is to say, there are really a couple key geographic sort of components of the American Constitution, the Senate and the Electoral College in particular, right? So the, the issue is, well, a bunch of small rural states uh, make up, you know, a majority of the Senate or the Electoral College. So doesn't don't rural areas carry a disproportionate weight in the system? And that's a good point. And they do carry more weight than they should, but probably a less than you might think. For example, a lot of states, a lot of places that you would assume are rural are actually quite urban. We highlight, for example, Utah. Surely Utah would be one of these examples, right? It is a smallish state. Uh, I think four million people that has uh, you know heavyweight disproportionate uh, say and the electoral college and the senate surely there's a good example of uh, of the rural voter dominance. Well, ninety percent of folks in Utah actually live in urban areas, so we're pretty careful about that. It's a it's a great question, Owen. We talk about that a lot. It is true that when it comes to the electoral college and the senate. 
the rural voter carries a bit more weight than 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 all things being equal, but not as much as you think because a lot of a lot of Americans in what might be a rural state live in the urban areas of that state. Yeah. Now, I don't know, as we look back, whether you think that rural uh, people are more likely to be nostalgic for the past than urban people. But I was just wondering about this in the context of the states, because, I mean, of course, every country has had, got, got a rural history, right? I mean, you know, until urbanization, everything was rural. Uh, and I suppose if you look at it in that way, America uh, has much less of a rural history than, than virtually anywhere else uh, in terms of modern Western development, or, or indeed anywhere uh, else. So uh, w- what do you make of that sort of historical element of the story? Well, we spend a, uh, two chapters actually laying out the development uh, of the rural voter. And uh, we note that it does start right from the beginning. We highlight the feud between the battle between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson over the future of the nation, right? Hamilton had in mind our urban centers, manufacturing centers, where Jefferson, on the other hand, saw the nature uh, through an agrarian lens. And that battle on um, uh, Hamilton's economic policies was intense. And and we see that throughout American history, this this tension. But of course, during the, you know, the 19th century, most of America was rural America. Um, but again and again, we see these, these emerging uh, disputes between uh, policies geared towards urban areas and rural areas. Um, we highlight uh, the, the, the late part of the, uh, the 19th century, the 1880s and the progressive movement, uh, the populace in the upper Midwest, um, and it, it carries through into uh, agricultural and farm policies uh, during um, the um, Roosevelt administration all the way through the Johnson administration. We, we note that the nationalization of the rural voter happens in about 1980 with, that, with Ronald Reagan. Yes, no, it's very striking sort of um, water uh, t- turning point that you've uh, watershed that you've established, and we'll talk about that. But ju- just on the history of this, it, it, it's I've often been struck that uh, if you go to rural America, you'll find some families who've been there on the same land since they landed in America, and that must and 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 often those families are not very rich, you know, despite the fact they they do own land, and and they've been working it for generations, and that must color their opinions right so the family that we open up our our chapter on economic dislocation and and sort of the economic factors driving it is is one of those families that uh in in rural north carolina they can trace their ownership going all the way back to a land grant from from king charles i um i've been i've been reflecting on the question about what what makes the court and country, which I, I think is how we often describe it in, in Europe, and particularly in a British context, what what strikes me as interesting is that although we've always had rural America, and as, as Dan rightly noted, at the time of the country's founding or independence, you know, 95% of Americans are rural, and it's only until 1920 that a majority live outside of rural areas. So although we've been a rural country for so long as so many other places, actually it's been the absence of a, of a pronounced rural and urban divide in national politics 
that distinguishes the United States. Uh, rural Americans do not, right? So one, uh, the, the sectional disputes between North and South throughout the early 1800s and, and culminating in our Civil War, that is not a rural-urban dispute. The majority of Union soldiers, the majority of Union people uh, on the eve of the Civil War live in rural communities, are engaged in rural economies. Um, At the end of the 19th century, you see what might amount to a a rural revolution with the agrarian protest and the populist movement uh, in the Midwest, but they're unable to coalesce into a national rural movement because the agrarians and the populists um, were quite progressive when it came to issues uh, of overcoming the racial barriers uh, and, and agrarians in, in in the South were unwilling to compromise on that issue as were political elites. Again, um, even in the in the 30s in the New Deal in the 60s, you see deep pockets of rural America that are staunchly Republican, uh, opposed to the transformative uh, and and modernizing plans of the Roosevelt administration on American agriculture. Um, and 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 continue into the 60s. It's it's really only until the in 1980 that you see a rural block develop. Okay, so let's get on to that. Tell us what happened. What what why did that happen? Well, there was a lot going on. Um, there were uh, a concerted effort. We've been talking a good bit about sort of bottom up pressures in rural America. But the other piece of this that we always have to keep in mind is that savvy politicians understood that they were, this was a a group of voters that were increasingly frustrated, angry about the turn of their world. And, and they were exploited, right? There was a concerted move by the Republicans uh, in the late 1970s and early eighties to reach out to rural Americans and to remind them that their world is being turned upside down by democratic policies and that they were the bastions of real America, right? This was was the last place where America, real America was holding on, but you're being threatened. There There are enemies at the gates. So really smart politicians, including Ronald Reagan and Pat Buchanan, this carried all the way through. Sarah Palin was very good at it and so forth. Um, So there were a set of policy issues, and maybe Nick can talk about those. But I think we should also keep in mind that it was important for the Republican Party to make gains with blue-collar, traditional New Deal voters out in the countryside. And they did that through tapping this this anger, uh, and to a large extent of sort of creating a cultural divide that others have written about. We talk a good bit about that. But there were there was sort of a, a bottom pressures and top-down uh, moves by elites. And at the same time that uh, at the same time that the Republican strategists uh, rural areas are becoming more important to the Republican strategists, they're becoming less important to the Democratic strategist. Um, and so you cannot you know, as important as Republican moves in these areas are in cultivating the myth of real America, it's undeniable that 
democratic uh, uh, Democrats, at least at the national level, see the future of their party as one that is increasingly urbanized uh, and suburbanized, and uh, rural America becomes less important to their electoral strategy. Right, and and, and but also presumably because they they felt they didn't share the values. You know, they wanted progressive urban values, right? I think that's what progressive urbans like to think, and there's no denying that, you know, a large swath of rural America, particularly in the rural South, is tossed aside as, you know, in the in the great realignment along the post 1960s racial realignment, right? So, if if it, I, it's really debatable how sincere uh, Democratic Party in the 70s and 80s is on this question, but they are undeniably the party that becomes identified with progressive racial issues, with a, an urbanized and, and actually rural uh, minority vote. And, you know, if you are going to pursue that, and if your candidates have to speak that line, uh, certainly there is an element of rural communities that you are not going to win. Um, it's it's not only that, as Dan, as I show in the book, um, there, are, there are communities that voted for racial progressives, most of them at Republicans in the 1960s and late 1950s, um, that you know, make this switch as well and really double down, I think, on in favor of Republicans, the party that's that cares about, quote unquote, real America. If you can draw a distinction between rural America and Rust Belt America, as I guess you can, that it would seem to me it's quite interesting when you were talking about rural discontent at uh, you know the turn of events in the by the time of the 80s. Uh, but I mean, the Rust Belt people had far more reason to be discontented and it lost their jobs. Uh, whereas rural America pretty much uh, carried on, didn't it, as ever. So did you, did you ever, when you were studying this, think, well, actually, what were, what were you complaining about? <laughs> that's so funny. That That's in the way we open the book, Owen. That's a really great point. We talk about our drive-in. Both Nick and I have about a half an hour drive-in. And uh, we go through rural America, which means we go through Trump America, Republican America. And then we cross bridges to actually come into Waterville. And that's all gone. It's it's a Biden America or it's it's a Democratic America. But but by any it's an objective measure, the rural sides are actually doing better. Better ranked schools, higher home values, lower crime rates, and so forth and so on. So what is it that leads these rural voters to be such staunch Republicans where we literally cross within a half a mile into a town and it turns blue like that? So that's a it's a great question. I'll, I'll let Nick follow up with what we've discovered regarding this place-based identity and, and this shared fate. Well, but before we get to that, I, I just... If I understand, when we use the term Rust Belt, right, we're, we're thinking about areas of the upper Midwest going into maybe upstate New York at its highest, but really deep into Michigan and Indiana, Ohio, and the core of the manufacturing and, and natural resource extraction industries in that area, you, you know, they 
they are important to the American economy and remain important to the American economy throughout the 20th century. But by the end of World War II and into the 1950s, the core of manufacturing has has left a lot of those places already for rural America. Um, rural America has lots of land that's cheaper. It has a workforce that comparatively uh, plays demands less in wages and also tend to live in states where governments have outlawed or made it more difficult to engage in collective bargaining. So by the 1980s, manufacturing is predominantly a rural industry, um, which is often overlooked. And so, yeah, the Rust Belt suffers from free trade and and third wave globalization in the 1990s and early 2000s. But rural America suffers deeply as well from that transformation. Yeah, I take the point. So so there is a big overlap between between the two. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, I wonder whether in the UK and maybe in the US that the discontent and the fissures that have opened up in our societies, quite similar ones in the last 10, 20 years, 30 years, are to do with the increasing levels of inequality and just the resentment of, of uh, uh, you know, an elite that is quite so ridiculously rich and sort of flamboyantly so. Uh, I mean, do you think that's part of the story? I do. Uh, Dan and I write quite a bit about inequality, both inequality within rural communities, um, which is there, but inequality between rural and urban communities, which seems to be more pronounced, um, both just in looking at the percent of the wealthiest families, most of them live in urban areas uh, compared to rural areas, looking at where the super rich are are more likely to call home. This is a predominantly urban phenomenon. You know, there is inequality in rural areas, but so much of the economic inequality is between these two geographies. And the the differences in income is only one way in which we can understand that inequality. There's inequality in influence. There's inequality in the signals that a, a cultural and political system sends to people about who's valued. Um, you know, we, I, I don't know how many times it's in there, but, uh, we we find quite revealing the fact that the 2016 presidential candidate for the Democratic Party seemed to relish the fact that she won the places moving ahead, even though they're moving ahead because uh, the super rich and the are driving inequality in those areas. You know, they, there are strong signals throughout our culture. And our political system that rural America is is left behind and is left behind for good reason. Who wants to be rural? Our future isn't there. And uh, rural Americans react strongly uh, against that. You know, let me let me add. I just let me, if you don't mind, I'd add something also about the economic transformation. And it is true that NAFTA and WTO has been real tough on manufacturing across the country, right? 63,000 uh, plants, factories have closed down since NAFTA. And it's true in urban areas, suburban areas, and rural areas. But what we discovered in the book was that many of these small towns 
defined their identity uh, by their the factory, by the, the one large employer in the town. It created a sense of pride, of stability, a sense of future, you know, whether or not it was manufacturing of of uh, dishwasher parts or socks or paper. We talk a little bit about Millinocket, Maine. Millinocket was a thriving, proud town, great northern paper, and it closed down within a very short town. And it was really tough, not just on Millinocket, but the whole area, the whole, their sense of identity was lost and the future was lost. So when you have the decline of industry, when when there is one or two factories that define the town and they leave, it's a particularly tough gut punch. There, there could be no more urban people than than TV journalists, you know. Uh, and and I just wonder whether what the role has been of Fox and and these other channels in creating this divide. And you know, it would be ironic if it, you know if they were a big part of it because. You know, not many of those people will be genuine, genuinely identifying as rural. Can you can you tell us, you know, what, about the role of these communicators and what 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 part they play in this? Well, we talk about uh, two different pieces there. We talk. I know not too many books on rural politics do this, but we spend a good bit of time on entertainment culture. Maybe I'll talk about the entertainment culture, and Nick can switch over to the news media. Um, we tell the story of the entertainment media not really ever getting it right. And by the 1960s, being rural is something to make fun of. A lot of gag shows, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, you know, imagine this, uh, uh, a family that strikes gold or I'm sorry, strikes oil on their property. The first thing they're going to do, of course, is move out of their community and go to Beverly Hills well, they never quite figure it out. You know, it's one gag after the other, one barefoot, you know, plaid jacket, uh, a gag after the other. By the 80s and 90s, almost all horror films uh, in Hollywood are set in the rural countryside, right? The, the, the redneck nightmare. And then we get 120 rural reality shows more recently. Uh, that depict these people, and, and they're not reality shows by any means. So over and over and over, rural Americans are depicted as backward, as silly, maybe quirky and lovable, but not in an accurate way. So one of the things we do is on our surveys, right, we, we, we talked over 14,000 Americans in, in this book, what we think is probably the largest survey of the of this kind ever done, a few of the questions we ask about this portrayal issue, and I can tell you that there is resentment among rural Americans at, at not getting it right of, of, of the way they're the way they're shown on television and at the movies. Just just before you just before you come in on that, let me um, just mention Clark. Have you seen Clarkson's Farm? On yes, yes, I have. It's the answer to that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, go on. Well, I, I to switch over into traditional media outlets, I, I want to put a fine point on something you said, Owen, which is exactly right. There are more Fox viewers 
uh, and there are more Trump voters. There are more avid readers of conservative publications living outside of rural America as inside of it. The, their business models would not survive if they depended only on 20% of the American population. Um, and, and so we did really dive into whether or not rural Americans are more likely to watch Fox. Uh, once you account for their partisanship, it actually seems like they're less likely. So rural Republicans are a little less likely than rural urban, or excuse me, um, urban Republicans and suburban Republicans. Over and over, what we find with our exploration of traditional media is that rural Americans are much more likely to be tuned out they are much less likely, or they are less likely to follow national news. They are much less likely to follow local news. And part of that is because increasingly most rural people find themselves in a, what we call a newspaper desert, a place where local journalism has been completely hollowed out. And rural residents or rural voters are three times as likely than their, uh, you know, urban or, or suburban Americans to say that the news that I listen to or read is irrelevant to my community. Um, this is, you know, the, I think this is also ripe terrain for somebody to come in and, and create um, myths or at least pretend like they care about rural areas because journalists, I mean, for a number of reasons, I don't think anybody is, is malevolent. Journalists are, are not covering these issues. Um, profit margins are thin and, and rural America is not going to make up the difference on the bottom line. You know, and, and also there, the other side of the divide is how non-rural Americans see the rural voter. And one of the important parts of the book is we, we, we talk about what we call the rural rabble rouser. And this is about eight to 10% of rural Americans. They're the ones deeply engaged. They're the ones that are painting their barn. They're the ones that are standing up at the town hall meeting or out on the corner with posters. They're very engaged. They're very loud. And what we show is that this is this tends to be the person that's covered in the national media. It's the person that's covered on the, the, the cover of the magazine or, or the headline of the story. Why? Because it's clickbait, because it's exciting and dramatic. Um, it, it, it's easy for reporters to get a hold of that person. They want to talk. They'll talk at any turn. Um, but it's not an accurate representation of the rural voter. You know, uh, for example, rural rabble rousers are twice as likely to believe in a host of conspiracy theories. When we take that group out of the pool, the rural Americans are about the same as other Americans when it comes to uh, conspiracy theories about Democrats and child sex rings and so forth. So the other side of the divide is how non-rural Americans see the rural voter 
And it's not a pretty picture painted by the media. We argue it's not an accurate picture. Yes. Well, you can never underestimate the laziness of journalists who you know, yeah. will, will <laughs> well, not go and find know, out real rural America. They won't find out real corporate news. They won't find out. You know, don't find well, out. Well, we say that we say they're overworked, but <laughs> get your point. <laughs> yes, quite. Uh, so, um, look, let's just look ahead. This is the future of and. You know, you say this 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 is quite a modern phenomenon in a way. This this uh, identification as a group, and I just wonder if you were advising Biden or you know maybe one of his successors in the in the coming years uh, on that side of politics as to how to break this down and and cut through this this uh, perception. Uh, what would you say to them? Well, the first thing we would say is Democrats can win in these parts of America. Democrats do win in these parts of America. Um, so it is not, it's not a political non-starter. I mean, and, and, and there is, somebody's talking to Biden. Biden, as, as we are doing this interview, Biden is in the middle of a two-week long rural America tour. He kicked it off last Wednesday at a, a family-run farm in, in rural Minnesota. Uh, importantly, a swing state, importantly, a state that handed Donald Trump the election because, uh, uh, right, many rural communities flipped. Uh, um, and, you know, that that's where I would begin. I would continue to advise, uh, you know, any Democrat running in these areas that Democrats do better when they run authentic candidates, candidates that are actually from rural communities candidates that are from the specific rural community that they are trying to win a race in. And one thing that those candidates do differently than Democrats from outside of rural communities or, or Democrats that are just stopping by and, 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 and visiting for a while is they recognize that resentment towards government and resentment towards uh, urban elites and, and to the Democratic Party is not all tied up in economics and economic suffering. Um, Americans, whether they live in big cities or in rural communities, are suffering economically. Um, what distinguishes rural resentment and rural grievance and rural anxieties is a little bit economic, but it is part of this larger cultural narrative, uh, values being looked down upon that Dan and I have touched on just briefly here. And, you know, this is something that, you know, we find to be actually missing from, from Biden's current rhetoric, where he, we, a Democrat steps in and thinks that better policies will solve all problems. And, you know, so long as, you know, we correct the mistakes of our past uh, when it comes to rural rural policies, agricultural policies, you know, we'll, we'll get rural voters back. And I think that's pretty damn simplistic, if I may be honest. Uh, I don't think any, I don't think anybody would look at any other slice of the American electorate in such a black and white term. Um, and it's going to take some rebuilding uh, that that partially involves people, authentic representatives running for office in these places. Dan. Well, the other piece that I would add is that it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to abandon democratic principles and move hard to the right. That's not what we found. 
In fact, we take a good look at what few remaining rural uh, members of Congress and state legislatures, they're not significantly more conservative than the mainstream of the party, right? It's authenticity that matters. It's a connection. It's a cultural awareness. It's a sense that the rural voter feels that they, they get it. They're one of us. They understand. Doesn't mean that they've got to be conservative. They've got to be a middle of the road Democrat. Not necessarily. Again, we find over and over that 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 rural voters are not farther to the right than than mainstream uh, Republican voters across the country. They aren't extremists. They aren't evangelical nuts. Right. They're not, you know, anti-abortion fanatics. We see that over and over. So it's authenticity, as Nick said. It's a connection. It's aware. It's an awareness of, of of what rural communities are about, and the challenges they confront. Well, it's, it's very interesting that you've written about this because I mean I think just like you're saying in the politics, it is a somewhat you know neglected academic area probably, and very very important. So uh, we're very glad to learn about it, and thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank all. you for the opportunity.